Hey everyone, this is Ann Greeny, and welcome to Capital Connections. In this podcast, we will talk to successful investors and entrepreneurs about the state of their industry and how their network influenced their success. This podcast was brought to you by Affinity. Affinity helps teams manage and grow their networks by unlocking introductions to key decision makers and auto-populating their pipelines to increase deal flow. Affinity's patented technology structures and analyzes millions of data points across emails, calendar, and third-party sources to offer you the tools you need to discover untapped opportunities. In industries where success is contingent upon maintaining high-touch relationships, Affinity allows you to get deeper insights into your network and finally eliminate manual data entry. To learn more, visit us at affinity.co. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Thank you everyone for joining today. We are very excited about our talk today on the changes that are happening to the secondary market and also thrilled to have our guest. She has been leading private company liquidity in the secondary market since the very early days, beginning her career as the co-founder of Forge, which was previously Equidate, and then leading the liquidity solution team at Carta. She's now general partner at Manhattan Venture Partners and leads the San Francisco regional office and focuses on growing their West Coast presence. Uh, She has worked directly with over 100 late-stage companies and facilitated over $10 billion worth of transactions. Please help me and welcome Andrea Lamari Walney. Andrea, thanks for joining us. Hi, Anne. Of course, thank you so much, as well as the rest of the Affinity team for having me. I'm super excited. Awesome. Well, first off, I wanted to ask you, in 2012, you you co-founded Equidate, which now is known as Forge. it's no coincidence that that was the same year as the Jobs Act was passed. Um, that act was was mostly for kind of re-stimulating or stimulating the economy and enabling equity crowdfunding. Um, how did what was the reason for Equidate? How did you guys? Uh, what were you guys trying to accomplish with that startup? Yeah. So very interestingly. Um, you know, in in 2012, um, you know, overall we saw a couple things happen. So. Facebook was gearing up for their IPO, so was Twitter. It was a really big year, um, as well as a couple other companies. So there were companies like Zynga that was a couple years away from their IPO as well. And what we really wanted to do was democratize this access to getting pre-IPO stock for the everyday investor, which obviously has a lot to do with the Jobs Act. Um, you know, the reason we started Forge actually is because we wanted to create a mechanism to be able to short startups. Um, so that was very interesting. We wanted to be able to short them before they went public. Um, come to find out that that is a much harder instrument to develop because it's really hard to define how do you how do you pick an expiration date for that option contract to go short or go long. So we pivoted with the model and we iterated and now Forge has a, a slightly different business model but still cranking and that's kind of the ebbs and flows that you need to, to go about uh, when starting a company. Awesome. And- one of the things that you you really have an expertise in is um, this pre-IPO secondaries. And um, why have they become more popular than ever uh, in the last few years? Yeah, so overall, um, I will say that back 10 years ago, just about, maybe give or take eight to 10 years, um, we know that Facebook was one of the first, you know, larger tech companies in the, you know, second dot-com era, I'll call it. Uh, that really had a very desired market of participants, you know, whether it were, you know, small 
retail, otherwise accredited investors um, who wanted to buy into the stock before the IPO, or there were people you know, that were on the Forge platform looking to, to short these companies more or less as well. Uh, but either way, I will say that in the last few years, you know, a lot of companies have taken the, the, you know, the playbook uh, from Facebook and said, hey, you know, why don't we get more supportive around these initiatives? Um, you know, Facebook was a flurry of activity. We all remember this before the IPO and then after the IPO, when, you know, the, the stock nearly crashed uh, the market, the, the opening day of trading. And so I think companies realize that if they're performing well, they have a desired market for allowing for liquidity ahead of an IPO. And, you know, fast forward since that Facebook IPO, right now we're in 2020, we've got companies that are saying, might not need to go public so quickly because of advents like the, the Jobs Act that have allowed them to stay private longer, right? And so they have both this demand on one side of a marketplace, I'll call it, that our investors, whether they're accredited investors or institutional investors or family offices that really want to get into these companies. And, you know, sometimes they're not looking to get in post IPO because they see the upside is, is all there in the pre IPO stage. So companies are saying, well, we have this demand and then we have, you know, pent up demand from a, a sell side, which is really our employee base who are seeing their peers, you know, cash out post IPO and sometimes pre IPO. And they say, well, hey, if, you know, peer companies and competing companies, companies that are competing for talent are going after our employees, these public companies, now the Facebooks, you know, the thing, right, of the world, um, we probably should incentivize these employees, allow them to sell some of their stock to the demand side, which is investors of all types. So I think it, the last 10 years have evolved quite a bit, to be honest, Dan, and, and letting them, you know, the company's realizing that letting them, you know, exit these positions, a little bit of it, not their whole, you know, vested stock position, but just a little bit could be quite meaningful to uh, employees. Yeah, and some companies are actually using it almost as a retention strategy for their best employees because they're staying private longer, right? And um, if you, you know, have been at a, a hot unicorn and they push out that IPO, that liquidity event further and further out, and you want to buy that big house or you want to invest your money or diversify your money, um, that becomes an interesting option that you wouldn't have otherwise. You just have to sit and wait on it. So is that part of the reason to you? Is that, is that, that, that just you know, incentivize, you know, in, uh, for the employees and just kind of making them happy? Absolutely. So a big reason for allowing for liquidity pre-IPO is for recruit and retain efforts happening within the company. Um, so it is absolutely a function of a, a people team or a culture team, but in conjunction, right, with the support of a finance team and a legal team who really have to model out what the impact of allowing liquidity, you know, in the pre-IPO stage, what that would look like for the overall business. But yes, I would say, you know, it's not only for that retention aspect, but it is a very um, attractive characteristic to describe to prospective incoming employees to say, hey, listen, you know, our company's been performing really well. You know, we are friendly to the concept of allowing some employee liquidity pre-IPO. Um, so if, you know, we're on the same trajectory going forward, we would love to offer some liquidity to employees either, you know, on a one-time basis or a continuous basis. But, you know, as you said, yes, very much so in a, re a retention effort, but it, you know, just to kind of go to the theme of this, of this um, webinar is that, you know, a lot of the best companies 
really have to prove why they're performing so well in, in today's market to have investors that desire buying stock. And if you think about it, a lot of the stock you're buying, if it's coming from employees, just for, as an example, it's common stock, right? It's employee stock options that have converted to common stock once they've exercised them. So you're buying what's considered a junior security. So those investors have to have a lot more conviction these days in buying common stock when you know it's turned into a new world. Well, I'll call it a second world, a second wave of companies that are agreeing to a little bit more egregious fundraising terms as they go to raise more money. So common stock isn't as plain vanilla these days as it was six to 10 months ago even. Yeah, and just wanted to to dive a little deeper into that is like with the current uh, current um, COVID pandemic shaking up the economy in so many different ways. I know the public market is up, it's down, it's um, and we still don't know what it will be in the next three, six, you know, twelve months. Um, will there be any unforeseen changes to the type of companies that are running liquidity programs in the second half of twenty twenty and even into twenty twenty one? Yes. So I will tell you, we've already started to see a shift in, in the types of companies who are uh, facilitating programs, whether they're employee liquidity programs or they're even price discovery or auction programs that are doing liquidity events. Right. So overall, the companies all share one very strong characteristic. They have a very strong balance sheet. They are a type of company that either is running an employee liquidity program where they're using their own balance sheet to buy back stock put it into treasury, just as an example, or they're the types of companies who are you know, capital um, efficient. They have raised a substantial amount of money. They realize that they have investors who have a lot of demand for that business and their balance sheet is strong enough that they will allow investors to come in, buy stock from employees and therefore not put capital on the balance sheet, but put that cash directly into employees' pockets. So. Overall, it's a very strong signal for businesses who are allowing for liquidity right now. But I'll tell you, Anne, one really cool detail is that you see a lot more companies these days turning to the secondary market to determine what a fair and marketable price is for their stock. We have companies that are enterprise SaaS, EdTech, consumer, again, all with a really strong balance sheet, but they're coming to the secondary market and saying, you know what? Things have reset a little bit in the general macro climate. We're going to use the secondary market to run a price discovery process on our stock and figure out what investors are really trying to pay because we don't want to raise more money, but we just want to get a sense of the sentiment. So I find that really interesting. Yeah. And this would be just to dive a little deeper into what you're doing at MVP or Manhattan Venture Partners. Um, and that is your focus is you're trying to find these companies that are late stage correct and with a great balance sheet that are on the trajectory to eventually have you know, go public or have be acquired. Um, can you walk me through kind of your, your process there and what are you really looking for? Yeah, so Manhattan Venture Partners um, is, you know, first and foremost, a principal investor ourselves. So we have raised um, three discretionary VC funds, very traditional. Um, we're currently raising our fund four. And with that process, we're looking for companies that are, of course, the disruptors in their space, but they're the companies that we'll see, you know, the headwinds of all of the activity happening at a micro level and really harness that and build upon it. And so we're, when we're looking at companies, we're saying, what are the companies that are one to three years away from an IPO that, you know, have performed incredibly strong in the metrics that matter to that sector or vertical? 
and then saying, you know, with or without COVID, they had a really, uh, a really positive response to um, the activity of their user base. And one thing that we're looking out for a lot is companies that um, have seen that expansion revenue, you know, that upsell revenue really hold strong during COVID because what that's saying is maybe the, you know, the top of funnel might not be there, right? Maybe top of funnel, you know, had a little bit of a dry up during COVID, which is understandable, but the expansion revenue is such a strong metric for companies that have a very loyal user base and are, and are continuing to deliver value. So some of those characteristics are the things we're looking for when we're evaluating companies. And you're also working, correct me if I'm wrong, but you guys are also working directly like with, you know, you're, you're taking on that employee, um, those employee shares as well. You're buying those up as part of your strategy. Is that 100% of what MVP does or is that just a portion of it? You know, what's interesting, so a couple things. Um, one, one business that we run out of the San Francisco office is that we do go into the companies, whether they're in our portfolio or prospective companies, our portfolio, and we help the company from the CFO to the general counsel to the CEO run those price discovery processes I was referring to. So we put up a whole mechanism um, to price the shares. And in many of those instances, we are acting as one of the investors buying shares from employees, um, which is interesting. Sometimes we don't wanna be because we wanna be a little more hands-off and, and be the ones behind the scenes running the process. Um, but otherwise we are buying very actively employee stock. We of course, very much so in every instance, are looking for that seal of approval from the company, whether it's at the board level or the management level to ensure that before we even engage in discussions related to buying employee stock, is this something the company will be comfortable with? Are there any questions they might have around the process? And otherwise, we address all of that way in advance, which is, I think, a very important um, characteristic of operating in the secondary market. But then I will tell you, though, about 60% of the stock we're buying and investing in is actually preferred stock. They are early investors looking to sell some of their stock because they want to get some IRR, some paper gains. And they're coming to us and saying, hey, I invested 10 years ago. I'm on fund three. That was fund one. I really need to get out of fund one. Can you help me sell some of that stock? So that's and, almost. Yeah. And for some firms that has to be accelerating. Um, I just read a, a post on from industry ventures on um, talking about it as well as, you know, there's some funds that, you know, can't raise, can't raise a fund two six, whatever it is as easily as others. And, yeah, you just need some liquidity from from that. So, are you seeing a, a um, are you seeing a, a trend line there as well of the, that starting that portion of it growing? Yeah, so we are seeing that we are getting a massive influx of um, emerging managers um, who might have deployed all their capital out of Fund One. They're looking to raise Fund Two. You know, the fund one is, is a few years in at this point. So they've done their follow on rounds and they, you know, no longer need to deploy any more capital out of that fund. So they are looking to, you know, exit one or two or three, maybe more of their positions in fund one and do so formally. So it's not just, you know, realized as a, you know, a paper uh, gain more or less, they really want to cash out of a position or two that's performed well. So it is very much so a reason why we see early funds or, you know, fund ones or fund twos coming to us and saying, you know, this company in our portfolio has been performing really well, like, and it grew exceptionally. And, you know, we hate to part with the position, but by now we've already hit our investment, um, you know, thesis of, 
have they realized 10x? Have they realized 20x? Maybe they have. So if they've exceeded, you know, that multiple they were looking for, then they come to us and, and they, they see if there's something we can do. Interesting, interesting. And, you know, one of the things we talked about is, you know, dry powder itself has rose for the seventh consecutive year in 2019. I think it was uh, at $276 billion in 2019, nearly triple of what it was in 2012. Um, with these record, record levels of just cash that is sitting there, um, how, how will that, how do you think that'll change the secondary market and what trends should we expect there? Yeah, so I will say that, you know, I don't have a crystal ball, none of us do, but uh, from a macro level, um, I can expect that we're going to be still experiencing some solid swings as it relates to how capital is distributed amongst every asset class and every investor in the public markets. And that really has so much to do with the dry powder available um, to deploy into the private markets. So. You know, one thing to think about that I always tell, you know, our, uh, you know, our CEOs and otherwise about is that, you know, it really is coming from the top at all at all points in time. You know, a venture firm might have a, a class, you know, a plus, you know, top of their class name, right, brand name. But where is their capital coming from? Where are their LPs, right? You know, many of them raise capital from pension funds and endowments. We all do in VC world, right? So, you know, what um, impact does the macro environment have on things like endowments, right? If God forbid there turns to be a big swing in, in the reaction to COVID and it doesn't look like universities go back in the fall, well, that has a massive impact on endowments, right? So endowments need that cash and that dry powder will have a, you know, a series of events that kind of lead to whether or not even larger institutional investors can raise money from those endowments and, and further pensions on the other side for employers. So just something to think about, but there's always a domino effect. And, you know, there might be a lot of dry powder around today, but I think we're still looking to see what the overall COVID impact is uh, from the bottom up and from the top down. So you think a lot of people will continue, a lot of investors are continuing to sit on at least some of it to, to see what's happening. And I can imagine as, we, as we've kind of talked about that there will be opportunities that are presented to, um, maybe take advantage is the wrong word, but to uh, kind of seize the day and the, the fact that there's going to be funds that need liquidity or, you know, employees that need liquidity and then are going to be trying to get into the space more than they maybe have previously. Of course, of course. So I would say the concept of short-term liquidity uh, keeps coming up in my discussions and, you know, overall investors have to weigh you know, the benefits of deploying capital into early investment opportunities, whether it's early stage companies or younger funds that um, are more seed stage or early stage. And they have to determine, well, do we do I deploy capital there and expect a certain return? Or do I put capital into the late stage or the public markets as an alternative because things are still, you know, sentiment wise considered a little bit volatile and, and there's no certainty, especially with an election coming up. So with all of that, I think the overall consensus around short-term liquidity and just a little bit more of a, a risk-averse strategy is something that I'm seeing across the board. Yeah, and so with the potential of, of more people, more different firms, different types of firms, different types of investors getting into the secondary market as well, as let's step into kind of the shoes of the, the CEO or the founders or the, the C-level. Um, 
And if they are potentially, you know, going to hold out an IPO and are thinking about, you know, whether to weigh this as an option. Um, first thing, like, what are some of the things that can go wrong? Because it seems like if more players are in the space, uh, maybe that opens up to more bad actors. And how do you avoid those things that could, what could go wrong? And um, how do you avoid them? Yeah, so when we um, and, you know, those in the secondary market interact with CEOs um, and COOs and just generally the, the top level management in discussion around structuring liquidity and planning ahead, um, most of the time, you know, the issue that we're going to see come up is that there is a delicate balance over the types of investors who want to invest in that next round of funding and um, those that will want to buy junior securities or younger securities, meaning the common stock or the Series A or Series B. And I'm, of course, talking about in context with later stage companies and, and CEOs and their planning. And overall, what you don't want to do is, you know, disappoint investors by telling them that it's safe, safe, which you never should, to buy a certain type of security relative to, hey, maybe you should save that capital for the next round of funding because maybe it's a little bit safer. And generally, I think what is interesting and not being as reported these days is that there's a lot more companies talking to investors about really funky terms related to their rounds of funding. I saw one deal recently where a you know, $5 billion plus company that had compounding um, liquid, uh, liquidation preferences related to the round of funding and a compounding annualized uh, liquidation preferences. And I thought that was really interesting. And I had been talking to that company about buying common stocks. So, you know, that CEO doesn't want to disappoint me as a prospective investor, but until, you know, that next round of capital is being raised, which most companies, you know, have, are now kind of in that cycle. If they weren't at the end of last year, they're having discussions for that now. It's, it's just a delicate balance of saying, Hey, we might get some funky terms in this next round. And it's because investors these days want protection. So maybe you should hold off on buying secondary and, and consider joining the round instead. So I think that's just something a lot of CEOs are keeping in mind these days. And similar to, you know, obviously part of part of our thesis and, you know, all the investors that we work with, you know, relationships matter so much in this business. And so when you're talking to a, a company who's, you know, it's trying to explore this and you're trying to help them figure out what their price is and should they offer the, you know, employee or allow employees to liquidate some of their stock, you know, what is that relationship timeline? Um, and how do you build that relationship and that rapport with, with these, um, these founders? Yeah, so this is, this is just another kind of strategy that goes along with what we just talked about too, which is, you know, a lot of CEOs, I think, have a misconception that every investor who's interested in their company wants to go into the next round of funding and that that capital should, their capital should go to the balance sheet it should not go in the pocket of employees. And, and that is a discussion I always have to have with the founders. And it usually starts almost a year in advance of doing any activity related to buying the stock or investing in the business. And it's because I think generally, you know, there has been this misconception that the latest round of funding is always the best round, round to get into. And in a post-COVID era, that might be the case for most, com most companies is that getting that last round preferred with funky preferences or terms is really, you know, the most advantageous way to go. But generally, you know, most cap tables to date have been fairly plain, plain vanilla, meaning that all the terms are the same and one X across the board. 
And so, you know, I always have to talk to founders and say, listen, the reason why the secondary market has over $50 billion every year flowing through it is because that there are plenty of investors who want to buy earlier stages of securities. And that's the most desired, you know, class and preference that they're interested in. And they want to get a multiple above that. So sure, it might be advantageous from a protection perspective to get into those rounds, but you really, you've got investors who want to buy your series A stock from those series A investors, from those series B investors. You know, they want to see a multiple. They want, they don't mind all the prep stack above them. And that's a really difficult conversation to have with a founder who's just looking to put capital in the balance sheet. But then it really turns into a whole education around the secondary market and why it's a benefit to offer employees, you know, some form of take stock off the table and cash out in advance. And it's because there are investors like me that exist and, and we're looking for a very specific type of strategy. Yeah, there can even be tax implications, correct, of, of you know, if you've been holding out for too long. I know Airbnb had something, can't remember what that was, but, you know, there can be potential issues where employees could lose some of their equity, right? Yeah, so Airbnb has been a tricky situation. So they have, um, a, you know, employees who have been issued stock options that have been part of a stock option plan that is over, you know, oh, I'm sorry, rather up to 10 years old at this point on a federal level. So something that Airbnb has no control over unless they have the right lobbyists in place, which I wouldn't put it past them. But on a federal level, stock options actually expire after 10 years if they have not been exercised. So Airbnb is kind of running into a bind where they have to make a decision on, you know, that 10 year mark is actually going to hit quite a bit for a fair amount of employees later this year. And if, if that happens, what do they do? There are a few options. Some of it is they can cash out those employees, which will be expensive from the balance sheet. If that's what they're going to do is buy back those shares, they can let um, investors buy those shares, uh, AKA, you know, common stock that had been uh, uh, converted from stock options. But they really have to address it somehow because there are there are ways stock options are treated on a federal level that companies just really have no control over. So it's just best to plan way in advance for things like this. Yeah, that, that I mean, it's the secondary market is is so complex in a lot of different ways, and I can see we're consulting founders, especially on all the options, the implications, and. Uh, um, you know, being able to see the full picture and not think of it just the same as a traditional investment. Um, well, one of the next things that I, I love to do is just to go through kind of a, a quick fire of questions um, that uh, will, you can spend as much time as, as you want on them. So maybe we need to rename it. But regardless, uh, the first one is in the investor world, uh, who do you follow? Who do you admire? Well, all the way, Don Valentine, RIP, everything he did with um, Apple and Cisco, just absolutely amazing. So Don Valentine, one of the godfathers of Silicon Valley, absolutely. And, um, you know, very unfortunate he passed away last year, but plenty of success in that lifetime. Second, though, I just, you know, I've never met this woman, but I admire her and I admire her even as of recently, but I think it's stellar. So uh, Mary Donofrio from Bessemer Venture Partners, she just got uh, promoted this week. She is stellar. She's part of the team that creates the Bessemer Venture Cloud, uh, Bessemer Venture Partner Cloud Index, the M Cloud that I follow religiously. And I think everything that Bessemer has done in the enterprise space is stellar. And I know she's been leading a lot of those efforts. So I am cheering all the way for her as she climbs in her career. Oh, that's awesome. Um, 
And then have you ever had a mentor in your career? Because uh, you started off kind of firing away uh, as an entrepreneur right after college and really haven't stopped since. So has there been an entrepreneur or a mentor along the way that, that's helped guide you? Yes. So I am very lucky to say that I spent several years at the NASDAQ and um, my old uh, boss uh, manager there is now the head of Western, you, uh, you know, Western West Coast IPO listings. And he's one of the best mentors I've ever had. So he always brought me to every meeting and would give me recaps and his, you know, his ideas, his advice through every single step of the way and still does that to this day. And, you know, I, at one point you really have to think about, especially in the role of a manager and um, an employee, right? Direct report is that you might think that at some point in time, there's a part of the relationship where it's like, is this person micromanaging me? Which, you know, I think at a, at a younger age of myself, I, I was just very pensive overall, but in general, you know, in, in hindsight, there was a lot that he did for me that escalated me and put me in a position to succeed. And I think that support between a mentor as a manager and a direct report is very important. You have to love your manager. You, you know, I would suggest don't work anywhere unless you love your manager and respect them and see the respect that they have for you. So I really value that relationship between myself and, and that individual. And you've been managing teams really ever since. And how have you kind of brought those ideas that you learned from him into, into how you manage? Yes. So I um, am very lucky that I actually brought some members of Carta over with me to Manhattan Venture Partners. Some of the guys um, that really worked incredibly hard for us at Carta and, and proved that they wanted to be in the secondary market in other ways. And I'm very humbled that they joined me. And I would say overall, some of it's, you know, kind of throwing them in the deep end and then doing a, you know, a retrospective, like, look at to what happened and giving them the control to make decisions and then reflecting on those decisions later and, and positioning them to do that. I think there's a big difference between, you know, having folks join a meeting or call just to sit there and take notes versus being an active participant. And I am someone who very actively challenges my team to be part of the discussion and empowers them to make decisions. And I think that's, that's a really important quality of, of how to manage those relationships. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, so in this uh, COVID world, I know that you ended up uh, ditching San Francisco for somewhere else for a short bit, but um, any hobbies you picked up or, you know, favorite books that uh, you've read recently? Uh, I am all for my Kindle these days by the pool. Very lucky to be able to say that. Um, a constant repeat of mine is Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. I think that is an invaluable book to read no matter what industry you're, you're in. And I reference it all the time. Yeah, he's, he's such an interesting, for those that don't know, ex-FBI. Uh, uh, and he, he talks a lot about reading people and understanding and being able to, you know, really be able to go in deep in a situation and understand the other person's perspective, which is so important in, in leadership. I, I always love uh, his take on mirroring and being able to mirror the person, you know, especially during conflict, um, because that really does help kind of like calm situations. Um, works good with kids too, but that's a different, that's a different subject. Um, and then any any TV shows you're binging? I know we've talked before. I think you you did uh, you did uh, watch the the Tiger documentary, Tiger King. But uh, anything recently that you guys have been loving? 
So I like to to end my night with just one episode of short, you know, 20, 30 minute show. And it's usually one that keeps my mind, my mind off of work. And that will always be uh, Schitt's Creek. So I binged what all six seasons of that in, in COVID. And I, I just love that show. I think it's very lighthearted and, and does a lot of, a lot of good for culture. So I'm all for it. Yeah, it's hilarious. And it is, it is nice to take a break because it seems like there's so much you know, heavy stuff. And sometimes you just need 30 minutes to, to reach charge. Well, Andrea, thank you so much for joining us today. Such an interesting conversation. Um, if people want to connect with you or get a hold of you, how can they do that? What's the best way to do that? Yeah. So, uh, of course, please feel free to shoot me an email at any point in time. A, it's A-W-A-L-N-E-A-W-A-L-N-E at mvp.bc. That's my email. Or add me on LinkedIn. I actually do typically respond to, to LinkedIn messages, so feel free to do that as well. Uh, but otherwise, I look forward to connecting with everyone. And, and thank you again to Anne and the entire Affinity team for having me. This podcast was produced by Affinity's Senior Growth Manager, Faison Mehdi. Music was produced by Affinity's Engineering Manager, Rohan Sahai. This podcast was brought to you by Affinity. Affinity helps teams manage and grow their networks by unlocking introductions to decision makers and auto-populating pipelines to increase deal flow. Affinity's patented technology structures and analyzes millions of data points across emails, calendar, and third-party sources to offer you the tools you need to discover untapped opportunities. In industries where success is contingent upon maintaining high-touch relationships, Affinity allows you to get deeper insights into your network and finally eliminate manual data entry. To learn more, visit us at affinity.co or email us at marketing at affinity.co. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.